Well, welcome to another instalment in um, the Hope and Design section we're doing in Gospel Conversations. Now, this uh, this is a particularly precious talk. It's a talk in two parts by by Lisa Aitken, who is well advanced in doing uh, her PhD in the psychology of hope. In the first part, Lisa takes us on a journey, um, and it's, it, it's really a journey of integrating her faith with her profession and her interest of counselling, and particularly the role of hope in counselling. And She takes us on a journey that really begins with her initial position of, that these things have nothing to do with each other, until the holistic gospel really gave her the framework to connect them. And in the second part of the talk, she goes into more detail, more depth around the emerging models she's got around hope and the psychology of hope, which are very informed by her theology and her belief in essentially the arc, the narrative arc um, of of hope which the Christian gospel has bequeathed to the world, even in ways it doesn't know. You're really going to enjoy this. I think it's actually a tremendously a tremendous contribution uh, to the to the gospel conversations um, network of talks. And one of the reasons I think it is is because for a long time I've just been very frustrated by the narrow, minimalist, um, really moral um, corridor through which the word sanctification has, has you know, become very, very reduced in, in, in Christian teaching and discourse. So that you know, growth, quote-unquote, um, in Christian terms and the Christian contribution to the to the world of personal growth and personal development has been very minimal minimalist and very legalistic. That's most unfortunate. I think on two counts, Lisa's work is is one of the avenues that we can break out of that. Firstly, I think it is really creating an agenda for Christians. In other words, we need to develop our own um, hope capability um, as Christians, and I could well imagine a um, you know a deliberate development and educational program helping us to internalise hope and use it as a resource. Secondly, I think it's it's also creating an an, an agenda for a much broader contribution to the world of development, to the world of personal development, which, as we know, is a very large world and and an expanding world in you know books and self-help programs and so on and it's it's very dominated by worldviews that are not christian but i think the psychology of hope fed by the christian gospel can be a powerful um, contribution to to the broader um to the broader challenge of human beings trying to make a go in the world so listen uh, with with great interest this is a fantastic fantastic couplet of a, of a talk. Tonight we're continuing the topic of hope and design 
little bit different uh, because I'm a clinical psychologist doing a PhD on hope, so not so much a theology talk as a conversation between psychology and theology on the topic of hope. To start with, I need to acknowledge my supervisors for my PhD. I have two fantastic supervisors. Tony Grant is at the University of Sydney. He's an Associate Professor of Psychology and a coaching psychologist, a very uh, open-minded and incredibly supportive supervisor. And the Reverend Dr Joanna Collicutt, who's at the University of Oxford and Ripon College. And she's been helping me with the theology-psychology integration. She has an amazing mind and is a, a wonderful, warm, encouraging person, so I really want to acknowledge them. And my two mentors, Tony Gosby-Smith, who's my How Bold Do You Want To Be mentor, and Michelle Smart, who's my Don't You Dare Quit mentor. So this talk's going to trace what inspired my interest in hope, so I'm going to start with a bit of a personal story, uh, because it really began with an attempt to grapple with hope within theology. As with many people, my spiritual worldview is a significant part of my sense of meaning. And so grappling with this in theology led me to explore it in psychology. And uh, it's been really interesting how these two disciplines have been able to have a sort of a conversation about the topic of hope. And I think it's really propelled the psychological understanding of it for me, having a theological um, interest in it. What do you hope for? So the content of our hopes differ enormously according to our lives, according to our worldview, our spiritual framework, our view of the afterlife. What are your hopes for your relationships? What are your hopes for your career? They're very individual, aren't they? And some of what I will talk about tonight is very much Christian content in terms of um, our hopes as Christians, because for me this is really important, for many of you this is. But the process of hoping... I would argue, is common across all people, no matter what their worldview, no matter what their circumstance, and so we can research that. Uh, my struggle has been to come up with a definition, what is hope? I've spent the last probably five years asking everyone I can meet, what is hope, what is hope? And it's trying to come up with what it is is actually much easier said than done. But I think, I'm hoping, that the conceptualisation I've come up with will stand no matter what the content of your hopes will explain the process of hoping. The great advantage of exploring what theology has to say about this is psychology has been looking at hope uh, for a very brief amount of time, for decades, whereas theology has been reflecting on hope for about 2,000 years. So there is a wealth of profound thought that can, um, that can help. So the first part of this talk is about just a background to my thinking and my own story, and then I want to explain what I'm hoping <laughs> is a, um, a better definition of hope than currently exists. So I want to start with the year 1994. This was the year that I really started to get curious about hope. My oldest daughter was just a baby. We were renovating a house. My husband was finishing his studies. I was doing a bit of work landscaping gardens. Uh, I was also doing a thesis for my psychology honours year. It was, quite, it was just an honours thesis, but it was quite big for an honours thesis because it was a cross-cultural exploration of children's understanding of kinship. So I had to go up to the far north of Australia, to the Torres Strait Islands, which is um, you know, an Indigenous community, learn their language, interview children, do the research. So it was, it was quite heavy for a thesis. 
So a fair bit going on, but in addition, my mum had dementia. She was only 59 when she'd developed it the year before. And the doctors were saying that at 60, she really should have gone into a nursing home. And I just I couldn't bring myself to do that. So she was in hostel care which was sort of fine, except that, um, you know, they'd present a meal to her. And the problem was that the dementia was in her frontal lobe, which is where your, your capacity to take initiatives lives. And so she would look at a meal and she couldn't necessarily pick up the knife and fork to eat. So I often had to go and literally help her eat. <laughs> um, and so my, one of my enduring memories of that year is sitting at a table in the hostel, feeding my daughter on the one side, feeding my mum on the other side with my thesis in front of me um, and trying to juggle it all. So look, it was a really busy year, but the problem wasn't the busyness. The problem was every day I woke up with a knot in my stomach, this sense of emptiness. Was any of this eternally valuable? Would any of this endure beyond death? Now, for, for the many millions of people on our planet with spiritual or religious beliefs, they do provide the, the framework that gives our life meaning. And I hit this internal inconsistency in mine, which I felt was sucking the hope out of my life. And I'll explain what that is. That what I'd been taught was that eternal life consists only of people and God. So the only thing that counts eternally is helping people be reconciled to God sort of saving souls, evangelism, whatever you'd like to call it, or being involved in Bible studies to help people stay on that trajectory. But this year was mad. It was so busy. I didn't have time to do this. I didn't have the headspace to share the gospel with anyone or be involved really much in church. But what I was doing was normal life. It, it, was, it was pretty, you know, changing nappies and <laughs> feeding my mum, doing some work. But how did that count for eternity? How did it have eternal significance? What was the point of designing a garden in my work if that was all going to be obliterated when Jesus came back? Like I, it, was, it was really bothering me. And while in, in lots of ways being a Christian provided meaning and strength, in that sense of how is what I'm doing actually counting for eternity, I just felt this, this crushing sort of guilt and emptiness. And that lasted for a long time because it wasn't until 2008 that this got resolved for me. And I read theologian Tom Wright's fantastic book, Surprised by Hope. And to me, it was like scales fell from my eyes. If you came to see me in the therapy room, as a psychologist, one of the things that we would do would be we would try and look at the lens through which you see the world. So we would look at what are your thoughts? What is your self-talk? And what are your basic assumptions? We call them schemas, your core beliefs about life. And they, we have a thing where we hold up, um, if you held up your hands with your fingers in front of your eyes and look through them, that's like the lens of your thoughts and your beliefs. And the process of therapy is pulling your hands down and, and looking at your thoughts and your beliefs and assessing them. Are they helpful? Are they true? and then maybe reconstructing something. So that notion of deconstructing and reconstructing a lens is very familiar for me. It's, very, it's a common thing in the, in the world of psychology. And this was what was happening for me in my Christian worldview. Because I started to realize 
that I'd been reading the Bible through a lens. Not just me, a, a lot of ch the church has. And as I read this book by Tom Wright, later I read um, some more works by Jürgen Moltmann, another theologian, and also Mark Strom, I realised what the lens was that we'd been looking at this idea of eternal significance with. It was the lens of Plato. It was the lens of Plato's ideas which have massively influenced how we read the scriptures. Now, I'm sure you'll be aware Plato was an amazing philosopher in lots of ways, one of the um, foundation thinkers of Western civilization. But he was also very influential in the church, even though he was, of course, not a Christian himself. But theologians like Augustine, lots of the Renaissance theologians were very influenced by him. He believed that man is primarily made up of an eternal soul and salvation, or how he thought of it, occurs when the soul is set free from the prison body to live in the realm of pure forms to behold the absolute good. You can hear how abstract it all is. Mark Strom has this great description of Plato's uh, belief system, thinking matter doesn't matter and what isn't matter matters. So the earth and our bodies are just second rate. We, we want to go off to this place of absolute goodness. So if you're a Christian and you're reading the Bible with Plato lenses on when you read the word heaven and you think of Plato's heaven, you get this ethereal, ideal, otherworldly place where perfected spirits roam unchanging without time and space. There's nothing to do but gaze in God, at God. And I think when I look back, I had a pretty dodgy understanding of Revelation as well. And I thought there is going to be perpetual singing in this place as well, which filled me with horror. It sounded like it was just going to be this long, unchanging church service. And I remember saying to God, you're going to have to do a lot of change inside me for that to feel like heaven. And the other assumption was that God's plan was to take us away from earth, that this was a place out there somewhere, and he was just going to destroy the earth. Now, what I realised was that that's not an accurate lens through which to read about heaven. And as Tom Wright points out in Revelation 21 and 22, we don't find ransom souls making their way up somewhere, but we find the new Jerusalem, heaven, calming down to earth and uniting heaven and earth. So true Christian theology says God made heaven and God made earth and one day he will remake them both in some great cosmic upheaval and join them together forever. And as such, we, we could think of it as a renewed and a restored earth with the kingdom of God being here. Justice, beauty, peace, love, compassion, all that that we know about the kingdom of God honour a new creation. Now that's something to hope for. I got really excited when I started to think about that. And it made so much sense of all those Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 65, where God says, you know, I'll make a new heavens and new earth. And he describes it. He says, I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping. They'll build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and eat fruit. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And you think, oh, that's not just teasing people with some idea of perfection. What if that is in the new creation some sort of a glimpse? I can't, you know, we can't really understand it, but some glimpse of what it will be like. Houses, 
grapes, <laughs> satisfying work. There's continuity there. There's, there's, our minds can sort of dabble in it, but there's also a lot of discontinuity. There's a lot we're not going to know or understand. And I think of it like Jesus' body. Lots of continuity. They recognised him. It was clearly still Jesus. He could eat fish. But masses of discontinuity <laughs> when he was resurrected, I'm talking about, because he could walk through walls and he could ascend to heaven and where he remains as a man somehow existing in heaven now. And I started to get excited about this idea of getting a resurrection body and living in this renewed creation and that what we do now in this body matters because God has a future in store for it. The best illustration, you know in the Bible it talks about the refiner's fire and that idea, think of a gold nugget, you've just pulled it out of the earth, it's dirty, it's rough, you put it through the fire and it comes out shiny, beautiful, radiant, same atoms of gold. And in a sense, it's been broken down, but something amazing has come out. But there is also something the same. <laughs> There's continuity. And somehow what we do now will be, while it may well be broken down, it will also be um, restored. It will endure. Think of 1 Corinthians 3. It says, what we build on the foundation of Jesus will endure the fire. That's the promise. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 has this whole chapter on that answer to that question, what will our resurrection bodies be like? And the conclusion is, um, your labour now in the Lord is not in vain. Like There's this connection with what we do now and what is going to happen then. Obviously can't fully understand it, but I trust that that's right. So caring for my mum, part of loving her, designing a garden as an expression of beauty and creativity, doing a thesis, which is sort of in a tiny way part of a little bit of justice for a disadvantaged Indigenous group, a, a more understanding for them. Tom Wright says, all this will find its way through the resurrecting and restoring power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. So suddenly, I had a sense of agency is the jargon that we use in psychology, that 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 I could actually act now and it did have eternal significance. Now, of course, God is also going to act in this amazing renewal. It's not like we as humans are going to bring this about. Now he's going to do something extraordinary, but there's a promise that what we do now matters into eternity. And knowing what I hope for filters back to guide my actions now. So I started to think, this is fantastic. And when I'm doing counselling, so I'm a clinical psychologist, which means that I work with people who are depressed, who are anxious, who are stressed, who have mental illness issues. And I was really interested in people who, not so much depression, because hopelessness is such a core part of depression, but the clients I had who were stressed and anxious and overwhelmed started asking the Christians about, what's your experience of hope? And what are you hoping in? And there was a huge range of answers. And then I st started thinking about all of my clients and I started all, in, all asking all of them, believers and non-believers alike, what do you think hope is? And, and it, like I said before, it's actually a really hard question to answer <laughs> if you have a think about it now, what is hope? Um, 
and I it just became something I was really interested in. I now have a, a whole shelf on my bookshelf, which is the Hope Shelf, because I started reading theology and philosophy and sociology. And I thought, this is so interesting. What I need to do is a little research project. What makes a difference? What makes a difference between people who have a real sense of hope that how they imagine the future really impacts them now and those who have a low sense of hope? What makes the difference for the Christians? And what makes a difference just for anyone? Um, of course, it grew, as you can tell, into a PhD from a little research project, which I'll explain why later. Um, but it's because I came at it not necessarily from psychology but from another discipline, um, it's been really interesting to try and do an interdisciplinary thesis in psychology. So generally speaking, I think psychology is very determined to see itself as a science and very happy to have chats with other sciences to communicate with them. It rarely communicates with the humanities, with, with those disciplines. And um, I, I, found that, I found that a bit hard because part of why I wanted to go into psychology was because I thought it would straddle the science and the humanities. Probably the best way to, um, to have conversations with the humanities is in positive psychology. So while, while clinical psychology, what my initial training in is for those with mental illness, positive psychology is what causes you as a human being to flourish? What causes any human being to flourish, to do really well? Uh, it comes out of Aristotle, who was Plato's um, disciple, his idea of eudaimonia, that idea of not just a happy life, but a happy, meaningful, flourishing life. So positive psychology has been much more open to dialogue with the humanities, and, and hence my hope thesis is in positive psychology. But there is an upside to psychology's commitment to science, because I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a society which idolises science, which sees it as the path to knowledge and freedom and pretty much everything. Now. Um, the good thing about that is I can say what actually I think is one of God's resources to us for flourishing, one of his commands to us. And if I say that and I start with research shows and end with some sort of biological correlate of well-being, then people sit up and listen. So I could say research shows that writing down three things you're grateful for daily improves your immune system. This is true. Research shows it. The scriptures say, be thankful. Research shows that unforgiveness correlates with depression. Forgive each other. Research says having loving, connected relationships improves your vagal tone and your heart health, which it does. You can, we can demonstrate that in psychology. Love each other. Now, um, I got to this point of thinking, what does psychology say about hope? I'm ready now. I've done lots of thinking, lots of asking, lots of reading. What does psychology say? Got to all the research, the list of all the articles published with hope. I thought, excellent, there's heaps. What I need to do, find a questionnaire that measures hope so that I can work out the difference in my clients between the ones who were very hopeful and the ones who weren't so hopeful. Find of a toddle to try and find a questionnaire. Um, I should point out that in psychology, the difference between optimism and hope 
is that if you're an optimist, you just have a, a general expectancy that good things will happen in life. Hope, you will act to bring it about. So again, there's that idea of agency in hope. And I thought, yep, that's fine, got that down. Went to what's called the adult hope scale, um, devised by a psychologist called Snyder. And this was the one everyone was using, nearly all the research on hope. And I thought, went to the scale, thought, excellent, I'll use that. Pulled it up, you can see it on the slide. And I thought, oh, I cannot use this. <laughs> it has two parts. It has the agency part of hope, but listen to this and tell me if you think these two parts together constitute hope. I energetically pursue my goals. I meet the goals I set for myself. My past experiences have prepared me well for the future and I've been pretty successful in life. That's half of hope, the agency part. And then in this questionnaire, there's another part of hope called the pathways part. So pathways to meet your goals. I can think of many ways to get out of a jam. There are lots of ways around any problem. I can think of many ways to get the things that are important to me. And even when others get discouraged, I know I can find a way to solve the problem. Now have a think about that. The agency part, I've been pretty successful in life. I meet the goals I set for myself. Is, is that hope? Isn't that I'm good at achieving goals? <laughs> Isn't that in my past I've been successful and I can think of lots of ways to be successful? Now, it's utterly about the self. There's no one else involved in this hope. And I thought, of course, like the headlines in these research articles, and sometimes they pop up in the Sydney Morning Herald. I don't know if you've, you've noticed um, from time to time, hope predicts academic success. Now, when I read that, I think, oh, so they've controlled for whether or not someone actually has past academic success and just the, the hoping bit does something special. But if part of the definition of hoping is you're really good at achieving your goals, what that means is, if you're really good at achieving your goals, you will be successful. I think, well, whoopee-doo, like that's sort of, <laughs> that's common sense. It's not, A, it's not hope, and B, it doesn't really tell us anything that interesting. And the other thing that's fascinating about this, it's got these two parts to hope in the adult hope scale, is if you pull them apart in statistical analysis and you say, well, this does correlate with well-being, it's true, because you would expect that being successful at your goals correlates with well-being. But if you pull out the pathways and just are left with the agency, um, the stats are actually just as strong. The pathways is actually redundant. So basically all you're left with is, I'm successful at achieving goals. Now, I, I thought, that's not hope. I cannot, in any sort of in sense of integrity, use that as a measure. And I bumped into lots of other psychologists who had similar issues with it. It's a lovely measure of goal success, but not hope. But, um, and, and they all agreed with me, but there needed to be a new measure. So I thought, oh, this is now bigger than Ben Hur. It's not a little research project. Now I have to redefine hope and come up with a questionnaire, and then I can start asking the interesting questions. So I'm afraid you've got a bit of the, the thinking about the conceptualization here rather than the really interesting questions. But Snyder's definition of hope tells us something about our world. 
Andrew Del Banco is a literary critic and the Professor of American Studies at Columbia University. He wrote a fantastic little book called The Real American Dream. And he scans the great literature of America across its history and he explores what people hope in as reflected in their writings. It has three chapters and they pretty much say it all. God, nation, self, historically. He says the founding fathers saw hope as invested in God and their faith. If you've ever read any of the writings of those early pilgrims, utterly rich in their sense that what they were doing was an expression of the kingdom of God. But the effects of the Enlightenment saw this diminish to faith in humanity's progress as it did across the whole world. But in particular in, a, in the US, hope was invested in the great national idea of America. You still hear resonances. Listen to Trump. <laughs> you can hear resonances of this. A nation who would bring peace and prosperity to her people, but there was hope in the nation. But then he argues that this has really faded, that the hippie revolution, the yuppie revolution, that now instant gratification has become the hallmark of the good life. And it's only a minor exaggeration, he says, to say that hope is reduced to the scale of self-pampering. So moving from the vastness of God to the ideal of the Redeemer nation, hope has narrowed, says Del Banco, to the vanishing point of the self alone. Richard Borkham, in his book Hope Against Hope, would add that postmodernism has had a part to play. Because if you think about postmodernism, defined as that incredulity to meta-narratives, that, that we no longer trust those big stories about mankind's progress, that we're getting better, that we're now sceptical about that because wasn't there Auschwitz? Wasn't there Hiroshima? Look at global warming. Like, How can we trust that we're actually getting better, that, that any of those big stories we can trust in? Safer just to trust in your tiny hopes for your own little life. So you can see that in lots of ways in psychology, the hope scale reflects some much bigger movements in, in Western society. And yet, when I spoke to my clients about hope and what it was and what they're hoping for, it wasn't that shrunken. Um, and the challenge was to create a definition of hope, and of course it's just a heuristic at the end of the day because it's a massive concept, but nonetheless, some sort of way of defining hope that included two crucial things. In all the people I spoke of, two things came up time and time again. The role of spirituality and the role of relationships. And of course, with that adult hope scale, you can't hope in God. You can't even hope in your surgeon or your teammates. <laughs> Uh, it, it's very hard to, to see the impact of either relationships or spirituality. And I had in my head that classic Bible verse, faith, hope and love, these three remain. And I thought, I've got to keep them separate. There's spirituality, there's hope and there's love, there's relationships. Uh, and they're all very related, but they are separate. In my first round of research, I asked about 400 people this question. How hopeful do you think you are, generally, on a scale of one to seven? And I also asked them a question about their relationships. And you might like to think about this yourself. How many relationships do you have 
where you feel you truly belong, not to three, four to seven, seven to 10, more than 10. And there was a really significant positive correlation between how hopeful they felt and how many de deep relationships they had. So clearly relationships are very important. <laughs> also, there was a massive positive correlation. If, if I asked them about what their spiritual beliefs were and no matter what they were, how important were these in their life, again, really significant correlation between how hopeful they said they were and their spiritual beliefs. As an aside, it also was a huge correlation with age. But the, the older people were, the more hopeful they were, which is interesting, isn't it? Because you think it could go the other way. But I wonder if that's a little bit complicated by the fact that older people also had more relationships and were more likely to be more spiritual. And, and so I haven't teased those out yet. And it's a very blunt instrument, just asking someone how hopeful they feel. Like generally in psychology that we wouldn't really stick with something as, as basic as that. So there was still a need to define it and come up with a questionnaire. So in psychology, there's a great strand of research called grounded research. And in that you go to people and you just ask them what they think about a concept without having a hypothesis in your head first. You know how normally in science, you start with a hypothesis and then you have to prove it or disprove it, or usually disprove it. But in grounded research, you just ask them. And happily, in 1990 and through the 90s, a bunch of different researchers just went out and asked people, <laughs> how do you define hope? What, what are the goals that you hope for as opposed to, to wishing for or desiring or um, wanting? And specifically, a group of researchers headed by Avril came up with what they called rules of hope. So they didn't just sit in their ivory chairs as psychologists and say, we think this is it. They actually went out and said, this is what, our, as the word is used in the general population, this is what people are happy to say is hope as opposed to those other future-focused words. So you can only hope for something which is possible or realistic but uncertain. So you can't hope you can fly because that's just a fantasy. Interestingly, they, they only wanted the goals of hope to be those which were noble and socially acceptable. So they'd, we don't want to hope for revenge. You can want revenge, but we want, I mean, of course you can in our language, like you can say, I love ice cream, but it's not really love, you know, you can hope for a bit, but really that hope, no, people said it has to be noble. That it reflects a person's deeply meaningful values. So back to ice cream, you could desire ice cream, but they didn't want you to hope for ice cream. And then it always led to an inclination to act, to bring about it if possible, but it may or may not be actually possible. You might have to have someone else do it for you. So this sort of you're prepared to act. Um, as I looked at that, and there's a whole bunch of other psychological research which I won't go through, I ended up with a sort of a summary of, of what the research was saying, how most people see hope. Because I thought it's all very well as psychologists to sit back and define it, but it has to make sense for Joe Bloggs that when he picks up a research article, sees it in the Sydney Morning Herald, that word hope means the same as what he means by hope. So. The summary is that it's a state focused on a positive future with emotional, cognitive 
and motivational aspects. So it's a complicated state. It's not just a feeling. Um, it emerges in a context of difficulty. It inclines you to action, if possible, to meaningful, moral, realistic goals, possible but uncertain, and a lack of complete personal agency. Now, have a think about that other questionnaire. That's, that's very different <laughs> from that other questionnaire. Now, I started obviously just looking at all the psychological research around on, on topics of hope and related, and I found that hope seems to be an intrinsic... We're wired for hope. It's an intrinsic part of being human. In fact, there's a whole part of your brain designated to thinking about the future. It's, it's a network. It's not like one little organ, but prospection is what the jargon for thinking about the future. So it's called the default network. And if I got you right now, if you're all plugged up to a machine and I got you to think about the future, that region, that network would systematically light up. That's what it's there for. And we think about the future a lot. A great psychologist called Roy Baumeister did some research. He got 500 people, he got their iPhones, and every now and again during the day, an alarm went to their iPhones and they had to write down, what were you thinking about? And then he had some questions about what they were thinking about. And his conclusion was that people think about the future three times as much as the past and half as much as the present. So obviously the present, like we have to focus on what we're doing <laughs> now. So it would, you would hope that people are mostly thinking about the present. But the future three times as much as the past, that a lot of the future thought was sort of a reconfiguration of your memories, which you then recreate in a whole new ways to imagine something new happening. And people reflected on what they hoped would happen twice as much as what they feared would happen. So we're really wired to hope. This is just, you know, normal human beings. Our brain has a part for it and we think about the future a lot and we think about our hopes a lot. Now, one thing baffled me here as I had been reading a lot in theology and thinking about this, there I had another potential hole now in my theological framework. Because if human beings are wired to hope, then in my Christian worldview, surely they must have hoped before the fall and in heaven. But it was interesting just doing surveys asking my friends who were Christians, do you think we needed to hope before the fall? And almost universally they said, no, why would we? <laughs> do we need to hope in heaven? No. But to me, that, that sort of felt a bit wrong. But why do we have these parts of our brain? And if, if I'm thinking that the capacity to hope is a common grace from God to all humans, like certainly not only Christians or people who believe in God who hope, everyone does, that it seemed to me that hope would be an enduring part of being human. And I came to the conclusion, did a fair bit of reading, that hope is there before the fall. Ian Proven's book, Seriously Dangerous Religion, was a big help in this. Bring on the Plato glasses again. Remember the Plato glasses, which influenced how we saw heaven. Well, Plato, remember, thought humans were by nature immortal. So if you have those glasses on, and also that perfect is unchanging, then you've got Adam and Eve, immortal, in this perfect, unchanging world, sitting in garden chairs, maybe planting the odd carrot, Nothing needs to change. So why would they need to hope? It's perfect. I mean, it sounds boring, doesn't it, when you put it like that? But 
conceptually, if it's perfect, why would it need to change? But that's not, that's Plato glasses, Eden. It's not that humans had immortality and lost it and will really get it back. There was always the hope of eating of the tree of life. They hadn't eaten it. And Eden wasn't perfect in Plato's sense. It was good. Good means that it was a wonderful place for the flourishing of God's creatures. Doesn't mean that in its original state, creation had arrived at its final destination. Rather, change is built into the fabric of creation. Think of the commands before the fall. Multiply, rule, subdue, keep, serve. They're potent with change. Ian Proven says that creation, human and non-human, is going somewhere. There is movement and trajectory knit into its fabric from the beginning. Hope is bound up in the good creation. So sin doesn't introduce hope, but we sure need more of it, don't we? And in that definition, um, you know, it says you need it in times of difficulty. Well, that certainly is true. We need hope more than ever in a fallen world. What about in heaven? Will we hope in heaven? Well, clearly in, in heaven with Plato glasses on, there'd be no need. But I'm going to leave it to Tom Wright. This is a quote from his book, Virtue Reborn. I don't imagine for a minute that in the coming age, we shall arrive at a point where we'll have experienced everything the new world has to offer and will become bored. That is a gross caricature born of the bland talk about heaven which has characterised afterlife speculation in the Western world over the last century or two. In contrast, because the God we know in Jesus is the God of utterly generous, outflowing love, there will be no end to the new creation of this God. Within the new age itself, there will be always more to hope for, more to work for, more to celebrate. Learning to hope in the present is learning not just to hope for a better place, but learning to trust that God, the God who is and will remain the God of the future. Which I thought was just, I couldn't, I couldn't top that in terms of how it was expressed. Along with Tom Wright, I also started to read Jürgen Moltmann. Um, Tony's already introduced us to Jürgen Moltmann, and he got me thinking a lot about how we see what the content of the goal of what we hope for, that that matters a lot in our agency, and particularly, of course, from a Christian framework, since he's a theologian. In 1945, he was an 18-year-old German soldier, and he surrendered in the dark in a forest to the first British soldier he met, taken to a British POW camp, given a New Testament, and he became a Christian. He was appalled at what his comrades had done and the impact of that war bleeds through the pages of his writings. He wrote A Theology of Hope in 1964. In 1967, he began at the University of Tübingen. And now, at the age of 91, he's still Emeritus Professor of Systematic Theology. It's pretty impressive. So he wrote Theology of Hope in 64, and he's part two of that, Ethics of Hope, in 2012, age 86. Pretty amazing man. One of the things he talks about in Ethics of Hope is how, as Christians, how we see our eschatology, our end times framework, in a sense, the goal of our hope, our big picture hope, influences how we live. Now, I just found this really interesting. He comes up with, there's three ways you might see the end times. If you're a Christian in this worldview, if you have what he calls an apocalyptic eschatology, like Luther or Karl Barth, 
if you focus on the end times, there's a great struggle. There's the Antichrist and there's Christ, the city of God and the city of the devil, and there's a big fight. Then you start to see life now in binary terms. It's a struggle, the flesh versus the spirit, righteousness versus sin. It's not that there's no truth in this, like there, there is a, a battle going on. But if that's your big focus, then he points out that you will live life now always needing an enemy because without an enemy, where is the struggle? And I instantly thought, oh, wow, hello, big chunks of the American church <laughs> or even of the Australian church. You're creating the sort of the enemy as you go. And the present might feel more like a battleground than somewhere that you can design and create and take initiatives to bring in the kingdom. What if your focus in how you see that end time is what he calls a separatist eschatology, that God is whooshing us off to heaven somewhere and destroying everything else. So you'll want to retreat into a, a Christian ghetto and be as pure, as untainted as you can be because that's how you'll see the end. You'll be separated out. But he argues a much better way of looking at this is transformative eschatology. The kingdom will arrive on earth in all its fullness. And what we do now matters to this kingdom. This is a classic Maltman quote. From first to last and not merely an epilogue, Christianity is eschatology, is hope, forward-looking, forward-moving, and therefore revolutionising and transforming the present. So I guess that's the very brief summary in terms of part one of this talk of um, the thinking and the researching, theologically, psychologically, all this was swirling around in my head and I finally came to the conclusion that hope has three aspects. See what you think. Does this fit with what you think of as hope? Firstly, it has a worldview aspect. It's a narrative that sees the future as one of meaningful possibilities. Secondly, that there's an emotional component. When we get glimpses of what we hope for, this generates the emotion of hopefulness. And lastly, that idea of agency, which has to be there, that we act. So two types of agency. Not, not quite sure what to call it. I've called it poised agency, but that preparedness to act. So as soon as you can bring about what you hope for, you will. You're in this state of poisedness, <laughs> if that's a word. And secondly, external agency to, to be able to say well it might be God who acts it might be my surgeon who acts it might be we as a group who act um, so they all obviously relate to each other this is an iterative, iterative relationship between the three of them but the more I thought about it I thought you, you can't hope without a world view that says the future has possibilities like if you're a pure determinist who says there are no, there is no real possibility. It's very hard to hope. I think it's just a bare essential of hope that you believe in a, a future of meaningful possibilities. And it has to have an emotion. If you, if you don't get a taste of what you hope for and it triggers that little bit of excitement tinged with anxiety, because <laughs> you may or may not get it, how can you really hope without just that tingle of when you imagine what you hope for? And lastly, the sense of agency. If you don't have a confidence that you can cope, you can endure until you can bring about what you hope for or someone is going to bring about what you hope for, 
then all you've got is optimism. To have hope, you must have that, that sense of agency. So that's a complicated state. <laughs> it's no wonder that it's really hard to put our finger on hope. It's a worldview, a narrative in a sense, and an emotion, and a sense of agency. Um, and my argument is that they're all part of this state called hope. So now in part two of this talk, I'd like to go through those three aspects of hope just briefly. So the first one is that idea that hope involves at its foundation, and you'll be able to see the three of them on the overhead slide. Um, it's probably the best way to look at it that it's a narrative that sees a future of meaningful possibilities. So possibilities are such an intrinsic part of hope. Kierkegaard said hope is a passion for what is possible. Moulton says we hope insofar as we can see into the sphere of future possibilities. Now seeing possibilities needs creative big picture thinking and there's one very common and important thing which gets in the way of this and therefore of us hoping stress. <laughs> what happens in your brain when you're stressed and anxious is this. If you imagine, if my hand, which is made into a fist now, is your brain and my thumbnail underneath all my other fingers is your amygdala. Your amygdala is a part of your limbic system, your emotional system. It scans the world for threat. That's part of its job. Now, when it's feeling threatened, it releases adrenaline. You all know adrenaline, the whole fight, flight, hormone and it's really designed for a physical threat. You're walking down a dark alley, it's two in the morning, you hear footsteps coming up beside, behind you and you're alone. Amygdala's going off, adrenaline's released and you want all that physical stuff. You want your heart pounding, blood in your major muscle groups, you want your breathing shallow for oxygen and your muscles tense and we all know that stuff. But what we often forget is that the activity in our brain changes when we're in a, in a place of anxiety or stress because at that point you don't want to be sitting back thinking about lovely future positive possibilities. What you want to be doing is focusing on the negative. If I go down that side alley, is that a dead end or not? Um, and so what happens is our frontal lobe, which is where all that lovely big picture thinking and planning and all that stuff and possibilities lives, goes offline. It's sort of redundant. Really what you need to focus on now, all the activity in your brain is in your limbic system, your amygdala at the back of your brain. So the jargon that we use in this hand illustration is you flipped your lid. So your fingers have gone up and you're just sort of a raw amygdala facing the world. So um, when we're really stressed and we're really anxious, I don't know about you, but I do feel my hope levels drop. <laughs> and if you think about depression as a state where for many people, they're overwhelmed in life. They're just so overwhelmed with stress um, that their capacity to think of any future positive possibilities has just gone. And it's interesting because I asked, um, again, this earlier research I did with about 400 people, I just asked some qualitative questions. I said, what, what do you do? If you wanted to feel more hopeful, what would you do? What activities would you do? You might like to think about that. What would you do? if you wanted to increase your hope. They came up with four things, like I had to go through 400 responses and code them all. The number one thing was relationships. They would talk to family or friends, or they'd do altruistic activities, which we know consistently make people feel good doing things for other people. 
The second thing they said they'd do was spiritual activities. They'd pray or meditate, read scriptures. But the third most common was just straight stress-reducing activities. They'd exercise. They'd um, do enjoyable hobbies. They'd anything which helped them cope. And lastly, they said they'd do that sort of inner work of positive self-talk or reflect what they can look forward to. But if you think about it, that the fact that talking to friends or doing exercise or doing enjoyable hobbies, all of those things calm us down. All of those sort of things reduce our cortisol or our secondary stress hormone. So there's this sort of intuition. At first I thought, why would they put all these stress reduction activities as to increase their hope? Like how does exercise increase hope? But it makes sense because that is part of what, if your frontal lobe starts to get engaged again because you've calmed down, then you have this capacity to think of future possibilities again, of positive possibilities. So it does make sense. What about the idea that the possibilities are meaningful? Um, if, do, do you remember how the grounded research people wanted to say that the goals of hope needed to be noble and meaningful? And I think it's a at first I thought maybe it's um, that we think of good possibilities or positive possibilities. But you know, people use the word hope in palliative care, where their hope is dying with dignity. I didn't want to say that was good or positive, but it's certainly meaningful. The hope of a promotion is meaningful. The hope of being rescued if you're out in the ocean, you know, that meaningful can cover pretty much all of the goals of, of hope. Um, there's not that many adjectives that are that good at multitasking, but it can, it can cover them all. Uh, Václav Havel, who was the president of the Czech Republic, uh, an amazing man. I was actually reading an article by him at a hairdresser, not my normal hairdresser, but um, who turned out to be Czech and from the Czech Republic. And when he realised I was reading Václav Havel, he said, oh, I have goosebumps all over my arms. And this man is my hero. He's the Nelson Mandela of the Czech Republic. Um, and his, his writings are, I think, well known there. And he has this quote, which comes up again and again, just in the straight Western psychology research. He says, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. It's that sense of meaning. When I read the psychological um, writings on meaning before that adult hope scale found out. So Viktor Frankl or Paul Prusier or Menninger, a constant theme was how hope and meaning were correlated. But not just an abstract sense of meaning, but a narrative which has meaning. Andrew Greeley is a sociologist and a priest and a fiction writer, one of these annoyingly multi-talented people. He has a lovely book called Religion as Poetry. And he makes this point, the experience of hope has a narrative structure built right into it. It just tells a story. When people hope, they lay a story arc over a certain span of history. One that identifies the limitations of the present, offers a vision for how those limitations will be overcome in the future, and the past furnishes grounds for expecting that the future will be realised. Now, we all see our lives as a story to some extent. Don't know if you've ever tried to write a little autobiography of your own life, past, present, and maybe how you see your future. It's an interesting exercise. Psychologist Dan McAdams done some really interesting work pointing out that the type 
of life story you make for yourself impacts your well-being. So if your life story has got a, like a coherence to it, you can see the patterns, and he calls that like a narrative identity. He says certain ways of seeing that identity correlate with flourishing. In particular, he argues that a lot of people have what he calls the redemptive self-identity, where you look back in your life, you see the struggles, but you see how you've grown and how you've changed and that difficult experiences have shaped you. And then when you imagine your future in the story, you assume that you're going to use that knowledge and, and it'll be a positive thing. Um, so part of that identity is imagining who you'll be in the future. And you can see the correlation with hope. So he argues that coming up with, with seeing your life as a story, as a narrative, is part of our meaning making in life. It's part of what makes it have a sense of being meaningful. Roy Baumeister has also done some research uh, about meaning. He, I love this article. It's one of my favourite articles. He said, what's the difference between people who are happy, who have a high sense of happiness, and people who have a really meaningful life, a higher sense of meaning? Happy being, you know, just good feelings outweigh bad feelings, and meaning is a purpose and a value to your life. And he measured all sorts of things. One of my favourite things was that children reduce your happiness but increase your meaning. <laughs> There's a trade-off. But people who focus a lot on the present are very happy people. They tend to be high in happiness, but they're low in meaning. And it made me think about the current push in psychology. We're huge on mindfulness, this idea of coming into the present, which comes out of Buddhism, which has a worldview sees it as actually a path to salvation, coming into the present and detaching from the world. Um, and it does, it does calm you down and it does keep you high in happiness, but it's not going to help your meaning and it's not going to help your hope. Well, it'll help your hope only, only in as much as it'll calm you down, but it certainly won't help a sense of meaningfulness. But, but he found that people who balance thinking about the past, present and future so not just the future, and link them together are very high in meaning. He says, meaningful thought allows people to think about past, future and spatially distant realities and even possibilities. Meaningfulness, therefore, involves understanding one's life beyond the here and now, integrating future and past. Now, if you've got a spiritual framework, then your life story your, life, your meaningful life narrative nestles in a much bigger story, usually a meta-narrative, your spiritual worldview. And in the case of Christianity, so obviously the one we're talking about today, we are part of a much bigger story of what God is doing in the world and we see meaningful possibilities in part because it's part of Jesus' definition of God, that with God all things are possible and that he promises to work for our good. So in terms of a Christian worldview, there's there's a built-in meaningful <laughs> possibility story that we are uh, being swept along with. But the next question I came to is the emotion of hope. And I, I just should add, like I'm certainly not arguing that a Christian worldview is the only one with that. It's just um, there are many worldviews with all sorts of variants of that, but that's what I'm talking about today. The next question I um, came to is emotion. What triggers the feeling of hope? And a big part of this is whether you can get a taste of or imagine what you hope for. 
Now on the screen, on the PowerPoint slides, you'll see here, well, let me, let me um, ask you before I show you, what is, do you think, the first image, if you, if you Google hope and then under images, what is the first image that's going to pop up? Like what image represents hope? It's actually this image of a new shoot emerging through a barren desert. There's all the desert and there's these tiny green leaves. It's a little glimpse of the full oasis. That's what hope is. It's a glimpse. It's a taste. Think of one thing you hope for in life. Just one thing. Now imagine it happening. Imagine it coming true. Do you get a little taste of the joy? As you imagine it, it might be mixed with a bit of anxiety, but there's a little taste of whatever that thing fulfilled will bring for you. So to nurture the emotion of hope, we, we can do this in a couple of ways because we need to get glimpses. So it could be having eyes to see glimpses of what you hope for now, or it could be intentionally imagining in your mind's eye what you hope for. Um, so if we, go, if we think about the first one, let's say I'm doing relationship counselling and a couple are in marriage strife, but they come back to me and they report that last night over dinner they just both found something really funny, started giggling and were laughing together. And just that little glimpse of what it could be, of relaxed enjoyment, suddenly they've got hope. They're motivated to work on their relationship and just a little bit more in a new way. What about the unwell person and something shifts and it's just even just a partial healing. They just start to get a glimpse of feeling better and now they're more hopeful that they'll become well. If you have eyes to see it, the glimpses generate the emotion of hopefulness. Uh, my husband gives me hope. He, in two ways, he is a beekeeper and what he does with his honey, he collects kilos and kilos of honey each year is he puts it in these jars and you can see the label on the slide, Hope Honey. And the, the profits from that go to a micro-financing scheme for people in Indonesia who need, you know, for, for disadvantaged people in poverty who need loans to make a go of their lives. He's not here tonight because he's at a, a refugee meeting. He's really involved in helping settle people from Syria into Australian society and getting networks of churches to support them and help them settle in. And to me, these are great examples of the glimpses. You see, his hope is for a world where justice and peace exists. Now, his faith means he has an assurance of this hope that kingdom of God will happen. But even if it weren't that, even if it was just a hope, because for a lot of us, it, it might just be a hope. Now, as he thinks about this hope, he gets a glimpse of how good it could be. Justice, no poverty, equality. And he feels the emotion of hopefulness. And that motivates him. And he now has agency that he could make a difference in some small way. And as he does these things, as he sells his honey, as he introduces, we're going to have a lady moving in in our place soon, who's a refugee who was held up at gunpoint by ISIS in Syria. And as he has this little act of justice of helping her and compassion settle in. So others look at that and they see glimpses of what they hope for, also a world of justice and a taste, and they're motivated to act. And you can see how the imagining of what you hope for triggers the taste of the emotion which keeps you motivated and as you act on that you bring in glimpses and you can see the lovely hopeful cycle that can start to happen. 
Roy Baumeister again, he's, he's a prolific researcher. He argues that these little tastes of the emotion of something you imagine in the future are really powerful. He says the full-blown emotions leave a bodily trace which can be reactivated. And, and he calls it automatic affect, just a little twinge, a little taste, a little glimpse. So the flutter of the heart when you imagine what you hope for is a little signal of the full-blown emotion you'll have one day if you can act to bring that about or someone can act to bring that about. And the twinge of the emotion, even if it's from an act of the imagination, is very motivating. Which brings us on to the second way. So we could just have eyes to see glimpses of what we hope for, but that stimulates the emotion. Or we could imagine it. We could intentionally imagine it. Should we be doing that? Should we be intentionally imagining what we hope for? The answer is yes, but I, I need to make a really important distinction between hope and goals. There's a great researcher called Gabrielle Oertingen and she talks in, um, she's got a, a book out fairly recently. She says, if you read lots of, you know, positive psychology books, the whole power of positive thinking movement, you'd, you'd think that imagining your goals is a good thing. So she's right now not talking about hopes but goals. So let's say you have um, a goal. So a goal by definition is something you could get out next week and start. Let's say your goal is you need to get to the gym every day. You could get out. That's not a hope because you just need to get out and do it. <laughs> it doesn't have that massive uncertainty factor. It's, I don't know, is it noble to go to the gym? Um, but So my goal is for the next few months, weeks and months, to improve my paddling on my ocean ski. So maybe what I should do is imagine success. Imagine I'm out there every morning training. I'm powering through waves like the ones you can see on this slide. And I'm not falling off. I'm super fast. Maybe this will help me. Five minutes a day, I elaborate and imagine and I'll be so motivated and off I'll go. Don't do it. It backfires big time. You are less likely to achieve your goal if you imagine it because your brain confuses the fantasy of achievement with the actual achievement and you are demotivated. When she first started getting these results in her research, she thought, that can't be right. She's now got 20 years of research in all sorts of domains. If you've got a short-term goal, don't just imagine it. You have to add a second and a third component. What you have to do, yes, imagine it, but don't just imagine it. Imagine it and then write down what are all the obstacles. Elaborate on those and plan how to overcome them. So I can, yes, I can imagine I'm off on these waves on my ski, but I have to work out how am I going to be brave enough to go for a paddle in the pitch black on the water in the middle of winter when it's freezing? What are my strategies? <laughs> what equipment do I need? Um, how many wetsuits? Writing the times that I'm going to get out in the water in my diary so it ha happens. But you have to do the imagining first and then imagine the obstacles and then plan how you're going to overcome the obstacles in that order. She tried reversing it. She tried getting people to think about the obstacles first, then imagining success, and that didn't work. If you do it imagining, then obstacles, then planning, you, you are more likely to achieve your goals. You're definitely more likely. But, this is a big but, if it's a hope, it's a long, distant, big picture hope, 
then don't think about the obstacles. <laughs> imagine it. Imagine what it's going to feel like. Imagine when that relationship is restored, the one that's broken down, what it will be. Because then the opposite happens. You keep the dream alive by keeping on imagining the best outcome. So think of that thing that you're hoping for that I asked you to before and now imagine it not for 10 seconds but, but when this talk finishes, write down in detail what you're hoping for, elaborate on it, just, just a flow of consciousness, all the things that you want and keep holding that in your mind's eye and as that's there in the back of your mind, so that generates the emotion of hopefulness which motivates you to act. It keeps you poised to act when you're ready. Which brings us to the third part, agency. The first part of the agency we need is what I'm calling poised agency. So in the grounded research we looked at, it's preparedness for action. Probably best described by the theologian Tertullian who said, hope is patience with the lamp lit. Isn't that lovely? It's just such a great image. <laughs> you're sitting there, but your lamp is lit, you're ready. Thomas Aquinas, another theologian, said, it's an embodied disposition to action that leads to flourishing. He's a, amazing. If you've ever read Aquinas, he's a really psychologically minded theologian. But in this patience, in this preparedness, we have to cope in the meantime, don't we? We have to be realistic about the struggle that we're in now or the hard time we're facing and the need to persevere. Jürgen Moltmann, another theologian, said hope is always a tense expectation and rouses the attentiveness of our senses so we can grasp the chances of things hoped for wherever and whenever they present themselves. That's the difference from mere expectation or patient waiting. Now this, this certainly fits with the hope as talked about in the Bible. 1 Peter 1 says, therefore preparing your minds for action. This is exactly the same idea. Um, and being sober-minded, so that, that I'm enduring and I'm persevering, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or Romans 8, 25, uh, you know, hope that's seen, who hopes for what it already, he has already seen. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And it's this paradox of persevering but being poised to act. It, it's, I'm sure it's a state you recognise in your own life. It's very similar to the concept of coping in psychology. Coping isn't you're just enduring and it's, it's a much more positive state than that. You're getting through but if you can do something to make it better, you will act. One of the biggest resources we have to cope is our relationships. Um, when I asked, remember I mentioned that I asked 400 people a whole bunch of questions and I asked them, so if you wanted to make yourself more hopeful, what would you do? And as I pointed out before, the number one thing they said were, talk to family and friends. I'd involve myself in relationships. I asked them another question. I said, if you had to increase your sense of hopefulness, what would you think about as opposed to do? And I wasn't quite, I thought people would all say, oh, I think about what I'm hoping for. But actually what they said was, I reflect on my supportive relationships, <laughs> how others have coped. So, and then their second point was they would think about their worldview 
like there must be a bigger sense of something or how I fit in God's plan. The third thing was what I'm hoping for, what I can look forward to. So before the goals of hope, if I asked people, what do you think about to make yourself more hopeful? Number one was relationships. And number two is what is my worldview? What is the narrative I'm in? Which I thought was really fascinating that relationships are so high up there. And when I said, what type of relationships make you more hopeful? They said it's pretty common sense, I guess. People who are supportive, who are encouraging, who are good listeners, who are understanding, who are positive. Basically, they were saying, this is my way of coping. This is my way of staying in the game. <laughs> I need these supportive relationships around me. And we know in psychology that good connected relationships lower your cortisol, your stress hormone levels, They engage, which then in turn engages that frontal lobe thinking. Presumably when you're talking in relationships, you're coming up with ideas and possibilities and you can see things. There's lots of reasons that relationships help with that. Lastly, external agency, of course, deeply linked to relationships that you might not be able to bring about what you're hoping for yourself. You might, but you might not. You might have to trust in God or whatever, however you see your spiritual force. The Bible is certainly full of this idea of hoping in God. Psalm 39 verse 7 is a classic. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you, that God is the agent who's going to bring about the goal of people's hope. Um, and of course, there are some things that we can't do and God alone can do. And our agency is in prayer, not in any other action. There's an American researcher called Kenneth Pargament, and he's done some really great research on spirituality. Now, there's not, it's quite hard in psychology to integrate spirituality into mainstream publications. <laughs> there are some, some niche journals and things, but I think there's a hesitancy. Psychologists in general are among the least religious, the least um, spiritual of all the academics in universities. And as a profession, we are compared to the general population, certainly in the US, uh, significantly less psychologists would say that they have any sort of religious framework. So it can be a bit of a challenge to incorporate spirituality, but Bargament's been able to do this and he explored styles of coping for, for religious people, for people who have that as a framework. Um, and he said there's three styles of coping. Some people just defer to God. They're very passive in their external agency. It's just to give up, let go and let God. He said they didn't do super well. Others were utterly self-directed. It was What's that saying? God helps those who help themselves. They were off and just doing it. Um, and they also didn't cope as well. The people who coped the best, who had the highest correlation with well-being, had what he called collaborative coping. So they trusted that God would act, but they were also acting to do what they could, to pray or to bring it about. Uh, and this little, this paradox is in Colossians 1.29. To this end I work, Paul says, it, it, the end is presenting everyone mature in Christ, striving with all Christ's energy, working powerfully in me. So he is striving with God's energy working, and that's a good example of that collaborative style. Now, outside the church, 
most people, it's interesting, have a sense of external agency. Time and time again, my clients will say to me, things happen for a reason. It's all going to work out okay. I'm trusting in the universe. Like there's some, even if they don't have another overt religious framework, which they might also have, they might have a different religion that they're, they're trusting in the God or gods of that religion. It seems to me most people have some vague, powerful sense of um, and it, there is external agency in the world, even if it's trusting in evolution's progress. I've had people say that. So many times people say things work for a reason. They can't tell you quite why, but there is a sense of external agency there. Sometimes the external agent is another person. If you're going in for surgery, you hope for a successful outcome. Who is the agent who is going to bring about that outcome? Your own past goal success is pretty irrelevant <laughs> at that point. You are hoping in your surgeon's agency. You, you're in a team at work and you're hoping for a really good outcome. Your own agency is a small part, but you're hoping in your colleague's agency to bring about what you hope for. Um, there's so many situations in life that we have to trust in other people's agency to bring about what we hope for. And lastly, for external agency, what about this idea of communal agency or collective agency? I'm really fascinated by this. It's not really been studied much and I'm hoping once I develop this questionnaire and start doing the actual research about what increases hope to, to look at this, Warren Kinghorn is an unusual combination. He is a psychiatrist and a theologian. And he said to hope for someone is not simply to hope that a desired outcome occurs. It is additionally to induct hope into a communal context, to do the work of hoping for someone who is temporarily unable to hope for themselves. So to a depressed person, to a grieving person, to an anxious person, a community might say, you're unable to hope right now and that's okay. You don't have to. We will carry you for a time in the work of hoping. It's powerful, isn't it? It really resonates with us, this idea of carrying hope for people or of borrowing hope for people. Now, this could be, if you think about the three aspects of hope that I'm proposing, that others get to retell you your story with some positive possibilities when you're depressed and you just or anxious or stressed and you can't think of possibilities. It could be that they give you glimpses, they help you imagine what you hope for or they help you cope or work out how to act. But sometimes that communal hoping's bigger than just that, that there's, there's something interesting that happens in a whole community that hopes together. Um, Bandura is a psychologist who's done probably the most work on this idea of agency. And he says there's three types, personal agency, which we've sort of looked at, proxy agency or just or others doing things for you and collective agency and he says it's it's one of those things where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts they shared beliefs to produce efforts by collective action and I think it's a fascinating aspect of hope communal collective hope it has almost no research it's probably quite hard to research psychology is very limited by what we can research with the tools of science which is one of the problems of it being so scientifically oriented. I'm hoping that this new conceptualization, once I actually get it into questionnaire form and can start using it and then asking those interesting questions, 
um, I'm really hoping I can I can understand that collective communal hope better. So hope is a worldview. It's a narrative of meaningful possibilities. It's an emotion of hopefulness driven by glimpses of that bigger emotion when you get what you hope for, as you imagine that. And it's a twofold sense of agency, both poised, ready to act for me, but also others' agency in my life. I hope that makes sense to you. Have a think about it. Um, to me, it makes a lot more sense than that questionnaire I showed you at the beginning. I'd like to end with a uniquely Christian hope. It's the last paragraph of C.S. Lewis's um, Narnia series, The Last Battle, his last book in that. And to me, this is it's the ending of a story, but it encapsulates really well the eternal nature of the process of hoping that sits within a Christian theological framework at least. As Aslan spoke, so Aslan is the, the Jesus figure, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before.